people who are bad to you or bad for you, get rid of them. Keep the good, positive people around you. Those are your family. You don't need blood. You don't need it. But I'll tell you, when she walked towards me across that hotel lobby and put her arms around me and held me, it was healing. It was it was so deeply healing. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to meet Lisa Marie, who chatted with me via Skype from Lake Garda in the north of Italy. In her journey, you'll hear the impact of a transracial adoptee who grew up in a homogenous world that didn't look like herself, and the serendipitous meeting that allowed Lisa to free herself from part of her past. Even though she lived a world away, technology allowed her to find her birth mother and spend the entire day online with her and her birth family. In front of an intimate audience in Colorado, Lisa got the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sing to one special woman sitting in the front row of her show. This is Lisa's journey. Lisa has lived all over the world from New York City to France to the Caribbean and now Italy. But before all of those travels, her life began in Colorado. Lisa is a transracial adoptee. Her adoptive mother is white. Her adoptive father is black. I was actually adopted twice. The first adoption didn't take Again, it was a white family. They're a military family. And they took me to Malaysia, of all places. I guess that's where he was stationed. And it was a bad fit. And they, they unfortunately abused me pretty heavily. And uh, then they decided that they couldn't cope. And they put me on an airplane back to Colorado without telling anybody with a note in my pocket so the stewardess on the airplane, they, I rem- this is one of my first memories. They took me into the cockpit. It was one of those double-decker planes. And one of the stewardesses took me home that night um, oh after gosh. they found the note. And then they took me to social services the next morning. And so the woman at the time who was in charge of the department that, that took me in was a friend of my adoptive mother's. Mm-hmm. So she 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 called her and I went into foster care, but she had called my, my adoptive mother who just felt this connection immediately and came to see me. And, you know, I was really diffident. I was really I was thin and malnourished. I wasn't speaking. And I just somehow we had this instant connection. And I've written about this a lot on my blog. I think that the reason that she had such a connection to me is she really had a really horrible childhood herself. She was abused and, and I think she saw like some sort of kindred spirit in me and wanted to help. But unfortunately she wasn't able to break that cycle. So I had a, she had already adopted another boy and a girl uh, who are wonderful, my brother and my sister. And so I was the third, although I'm the oldest that to come into the house And she was just really, my adoptive mother was really unstable. She had a lot of mental health issues and she was really rough on the three of us. Mm. Let me me pause you for a minute and let's go back. First of all, I'm sorry for how your beginnings started off. This is, I mean, unbelievable already. Tell me, do you recall, how old were you when you were placed on the plane? And and So when I was placed on the plane, I was... Seven, six and a half, seven. Mm. And then when I, by the time that I was adopted, I was eight. And is this a plane from Malaysia to the United States? Yes. Yeah, to Denver. So you, I'm just trying to fathom how one puts a child on a plane from Malaysia to right. I don't think it could happen today. Denver. You know, I was born in 1966. So this is the early 70s and adoption in general was a whole nother ball of wax and just not the same sort of restrictions. In fact, I think probably my adoptive mother would not be able to adopt today, or at least I hope, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the case. But 
Um, so I don't want to just talk about the negative aspect of her. She, there was also a lot of good that she, she brought to us. The first okay. one, I don't have any memory. I don't have yes. any memories really of that time that mm -hmm. I spent there. Yeah. Apparently when I was first adopted, I did tell my mother, my new adoptive mother, mm -hmm. some of what had happened and I had scars and stuff on my body. So, mm -hmm. but I, I really don't have memories of that. There's, there's some smells that might trigger like a really? bad feeling yeah. one is chicken broth like a chicken boiling mm -hmm. for years i couldn't smell that without sobbing you know really? but i don't have any really solid memories of that i just have the words that i told to my adoptive mother you know so i don't know how reliable that is about exactly what happened mm -hmm. but the words that i told her about was being burned with cigarettes being locked in a room on my own and apparently the, the the straw that broke the camel's back is that they painted my toenails and my only act of rebellion was to pick off this toenail polish and that incensed them and that was the reason for putting me on this plane and sending me back to america so the interesting thing is that when i did and, I, and now I'm getting ahead of the story, perhaps. But when I did um, the search for my birth mother, there I found the name of that uh, those people as well. So the woman at social services in Denver was Lisa's adoptive mother's friend. She applied to bring Lisa home right away, but Lisa went into foster care for a while before going home with her new mother. In her second home, Lisa was the oldest child and the last adoptee to enter their home. She spoke highly of her younger brother, Miles, an amazing man in her eyes. Lisa recalls meeting him for the first time, then protecting her younger brother and sister from the periodic thunderstorms in their home thereafter. One of my very first memories of walk, really one of my first memories, because I blocked out so much of the bad stuff from before, is going into that house for the first time and him taking my hand and leading me around the house and showing me where my room was going to be and just sort of taking care of me, you know? And then my sister is one year younger than he is. So he's five years younger than me. And then she's four years younger, one year younger than him. So that relationship was good. And I, and I felt very protective of them immediately. Mm. And because I was kind of immediately the favorite of my mother, despite the fact that she, you know, abused all of us, I was able sometimes to get in, the middle with them and try to, and also because I was the biggest, you know? So the, the thing about that house was it was, it was like any kind of abusive relationship. And, and I think especially any, anyone who's in a romantic relationship where they're being abused, they know that you're, what you spend your time trying to do is making the abusive person happy and feeling like it's your fault. Like if they're not, and that was very much the case there. Like we, we could go for um, a couple of weeks and, and, and things would be fine. And when she was good, she was really, really good. So we'd listen to a lot of music. We had tons of music in the house and we'd mm. sing and she would read to us every evening before we went to bed. She instilled in me this love for words that I have through song and literature. But unfortunately, you know, she wasn't stable for very long ever. You know, I remember her, my father sitting on her a couple of times to calm her down because she was out of her mind and attacking him and, and yelling at me, call 911, call 911, you know, and, and having to call the police and having people come in, put her in a straight jacket and take her away. That happened more than once. And then, you know, she he was very careful about where she hit us so that it wouldn't show, you know. And one time my little sister, um, who unfortunately is no longer with us, she committed suicide last year. Oh, no. Yeah, it's really sad. She one time told somebody at school, like a, an authority, like a teacher or something, and they sent people to the house to check into this. And my adoptive mother charmed them completely and said, I don't know what, you know, children make up stories. What are you talking about? Everything's fine here. And of course we are all in there saying, no, 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 we're fine. We're fine. And as soon as they were gone, oh my goodness gracious, she, she went crazy and oh. none of us spoke a word again, mm. you know? Mm. So, wow. um, 
So yeah, there was that dichotomy of really, really, really good times and really, really, really bad times. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what your relationship was like with your adoptive father? Yeah, he was very absent and um, and he was very much in love with my adoptive mother and she pretty much tried to control herself around him, although she didn't. I mean, it was, of course, apparent. And I had a really complicated relationship with him because I looked at him for the longest time as just being really weak and not the, you know, he was not our protector. He didn't do anything to change this situation. So I had a really troubled relationship with him. And unfortunately, he passed as well. So yeah, I never really had a great relationship with him. And then he also did not connect to his blackness. You know what I mean? The only way that he did was jazz, listening to jazz. But for the rest of it, he tried very much to blend into the white neighborhood that we're in. And we're in Boulder, Colorado, which is at the time, 1% ethnic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's all ethnicities, you know? (laughs) So it was very white. And he worked in a bank and he very much embraced that culture and didn't try to impart anything else. There's one thing that he did say to me in junior high school, there was one black boy who arrived in the town. And of course, all the students tried to put us together because, you know... Uh, it's like Sesame Street. You must, you must go together, you know. Right. Um, and, but I and I was uh, fascinated with with the blonde boy um, in the class that all the other girls were in love with, of course, right. not the the black boy. And but I loved the way he talked. You know, he had like the cadence. Mm-hmm. And so I started trying to imitate that and coming home and trying to get some get my get my black on, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And my father was just so angry. He said, you know, you have two strikes against you. You are black and you are a woman. So you better know how to speak properly, which on hindsight, I, you know, that's great that he impressed upon me the importance of being able to present oneself well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I want to be, there's so many, it's uh, so many great black people who can navigate those two different languages that they really are you know and i can't i'm i feel ridiculous you know trying even trying it's just yeah you know um it's it's a frustrating thing that i missed out on yeah yeah i can imagine it's and it's interesting to hear you talk about him assimilating into the community in the way that he did right because in in a predominantly white community, you can't escape your blackness. That It is there, visible for everyone to see. And so no matter how articulate and you know good you are at business and polite or whatever the thing is, at the end of the day, you're still the black guy in a white community. And it's very That's hard right. to escape that. And it's interesting to hear you convey the position that he shared with you of your two strikes, right? That, you know, and especially as a young girl growing up, hearing that being a female is a strike, that was probably pretty tough. Like, here I am, this child that has come from and am living in an abusive family, which already, I would assume, feels awful. And then you're telling me that the person that I am, the one that looks in the mirror, has two strikes against her, too. Like, it must have been really hard for you to, to sort of navigate life with all of these pressures coming at you from a variety of directions. It was, it was. And so I've I've been, I've written a lot of essays in the last couple of years. Well, you know that I'm a singer songwriter. So I, I've written songs about my life for years. I wasn't really able to write about the sort of darker side until my second hippie tendencies album, which was about 10 years ago, eight years ago where I have a song called Beat, where I really delve into it. But it took me that long to be able to really sort of break it down in a way, because I think the thing about making art is that you don't want to talk about something that is horrible, that has happened to you, and tear people down and bring people down. You need to be able to 
to discuss it and present it in a way that is healing for the listener as much as for yourself. And I didn't get there until until a while back. But now I'm fully in it and I write a lot about about the things that that happened to me as a child. And, and, I, and I find people who knew me back in Boulder, like I had no idea, you know, I was really good at hiding it. As you can see, I'm really gregarious. Yeah. Um, I'm very much a, pe- a people person. Yeah. I love people. Yeah. And I've always sung and been an actor and been on stage and re- been really, it was really great for me to act as a kid because it was, I can be somebody completely different and really immerse myself in that. And I've always loved literature. I always have lived in books. And, and that music, music, theater, literature are what saved my life because really? I was able to take myself outside of myself for one thing and know that I'm not alone, learn empathy, that, that not to feel sorry for myself, but to look for my strengths and to make lemonade, you know, like B says, yeah. uh, to, <laughs> to find a way to, to live and to thrive. So those are the things that, that brought me out of it. And, and the reason that I write so much about my childhood and, and about all these experiences is because I know there are so many people who either from an abusive childhood or who have had to deal with racism as a child that it sticks with them, you know, it mm-hmm. sticks them with you for the rest of your life. And, and I was determined, you know, I read about that vicious circle that happens and I saw it happening with my mother. And from a really young age, I said, I'm, I'm not going to, that's not me. That's not, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to perpetuate this cycle. And how do I, how do I break it? What, what do I do? I need to love myself. And I didn't learn to love myself until I left Boulder, Colorado. As a teenager in Colorado with two strikes against her and living in an abusive family, Lisa found herself enamored with a blonde boy in middle school. They became best friends. He came from a wealthy family, while Lisa was from a lower middle class family. She would go to his house. They would do homework together. He was attentive to her, and it was there that she had her first kiss. But when they went to school, he didn't treat her the same way other boyfriends and girlfriends were behaving. There was no holding hands or affection. When she asked him about it at his home, he gushed that she was the prettiest, funniest girl in school. But if people found out that she, a black girl, was his, it would ruin his reputation. Lisa was crushed. She went on to learn that many of the guys she was interested in were ready to try a little something behind closed doors, but she soon learned that she wasn't dateable in their eyes. The one boy who was able to see past Lisa's color, whom she dated, unfortunately died in a car accident six months after they met. She had her challenges with men at that age. But I do identify as being bisexual. And in those years, I did have experiences with women Mm -hmm. or with girls in school. And that was great. Really? Um, Yeah, it was really, really great. I had a a wonderful circle of female friends, all white, Mm -hmm. experimenting Mm -hmm. with each other. And that also was a, a, another saving grace. You know, people who we could tell secrets to mm-hmm. and be a part of my development, my search for who I was. So I had a, a huge circle of friends that crossed over from the jocks to the theater department, to mm-hmm. the choir department, um, to the student council. Uh, so I didn't lack for, for friends at all. That's it was awesome. just that element, the sexual element and exploring my sexuality that was really crushing as far as how I saw myself. And so I was learning more about what it meant to live in this skin. I just wonder if you could just share quickly, how was your sort of experimentation with girls different than it had been with these white men who had basically said behind closed doors, we're good, but out here in public, we can't be. How was it with the women? Were they more oh my gosh, accepting, the more loving? Yeah. Oh, they would. We would hold hands in school. Mm-hmm. We did not care. Mm-hmm. We would awesome. walk down the halls, you know. And it was part of us just being the rebels too, but really loving and really accepting of of me in every way. The funny thing is, though, um, and some of these women who I'm still friends with today, we never talked about my blackness 
Like I did not have these conversations at that time with them. In junior high school, I think in high school this stopped, but in junior high school, there would be black jokes that people would be start telling a, 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 a nigger joke, excuse the, the word, mm. and then look at me and be like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Like, and I, <laughs> you know, and, I, and my thing was like, why are you sorry to me? You, this should, if I'm not here, you shouldn't be say, you know, right. so I would, I had tried when I was in, in junior high school to say that and people would be like, oh, you know, you don't get it. You're, it's just a joke. You have no sense of humor. They really got down on me. So I would just walk away um, when that happened mm-hmm. or worse still stay and just be quiet, you know? And I think in high school, I don't remember that particularly happening, but again, I didn't talk about all the microaggressions that did happen Mm -hmm. with my friends and I don't think with my female friends certainly there were microaggressions that I did not even know how to name and that othering that I did not yet have a dialogue for didn't have words for it so um so that was not a part of our our conversation yeah but you know I felt I felt loved and I felt understood Mm -hmm. by by them Lisa said that she found her freedom when she left Colorado. But remember, she was the oldest of the children in the family. So when she spread her wings, she left the younger siblings behind. She told me her parents separated when she was a junior in high school. Her mother had left her father to be with another woman. Lisa's siblings stayed with their mother and the new woman in another town, and Lisa stayed with her father. But their relationship wasn't working out. Lisa was unhappy with her father's history of not protecting the children from their mother. Then, after their mother left and it was just him and Lisa, he started trying to be her father in a way that she wasn't receptive to. Lisa got herself an apartment in her last year of high school. My brother and sister, I, I, I hate to say it, and, but I have to own it, you know, I, I was so concerned with just trying to keep myself together that I was no longer protecting them the way that I, that I sh- should have. You know, they were sort of out of sight, out of mind. And I was just, let me get out of here. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I became selfish at that point. And, and that's where I, I sort of entered what I, what I refer to in my own mind as my wild years. Lisa finished high school and was accepted to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City. After a month of attending classes, the financial aid office alerted her that her tuition was unpaid. She discovered her father hadn't completed what she needed to continue school, so she dropped out. She put together a band, moved in with a new boyfriend, and got a job at a restaurant called 2020, started by the famous soul artists Ashford and Simpson. There, she took reservations from patrons over the phone. Having grown up in Colorado, Lisa didn't sound like a New Yorker at all, and certainly not a black New Yorker to their ear. When patrons showed up at the restaurant, They were taken aback to learn that the Lisa they heard on the phone was the black woman standing before them at 2020. People thought she was putting on airs, speaking the way she did, which alienated Lisa somewhat from trying too hard to integrate more into the black community there. She knew that she was unique, so she found her way. A really defining moment after I got to New York was I formed my band. I am, I've got my circle of misfits and I'm feeling good and I'm glad to be there. And I'm a little bit wild. I've gone a little bit off the rails, you know, doing too many drugs and drinking too much and just, you know, sort of letting loose and maybe, you know, confronting all of that bad stuff that I'd been sort of tamping down and trying to, and trying to just get through my day. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm acting out. And I'm walking down the street. It's it's maybe like three or four in the morning and I'm drunk with a bunch of friends and I'm laughing loud as I am wont to. And from like a whole other block, a whole other street over, I hear Lisa Marie Simmons. And I'm like, yeah. And this guy comes around the corner and it's a guy from, from Boulder, Colorado. And it's a guy that I had a huge crush on oh, wow. at the time and who had just he was one of those ones who behind closed doors he would like sort of try it on but nothing but you know nothing nothing really ever happened so he's there 
and he, it's 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 like fate. You know, he said it's like fate. How, it's this time of the morning, and we're both walking down the street. How is it possible that I, you know, we we got to go out to dinner? Let me take you out to dinner tomorrow night. So we we go out to dinner, and oh my gosh, the entire dinner, he's saying to me, "God, you're gorgeous. You're absolutely gorgeous." And I, and I feel, like I don't feel gorgeous, but I feel pretty. Yeah. You know, I feel like I don't I don't feel ugly like I did in in Boulder. And he's saying, you know, you're, you look great and, 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 and it sounds like you, you're doing really well. And I just want to apologize to you for how I was in Boulder. And then he just went on and on like he was looking for me to absolve him for his behavior. Like he was, look, he was coming to me for forgiveness mm-hmm. and I, it was on me to make his shit okay. Right. And I was, I, I honestly almost, I, I think I pretty much laughed in his face. Like it was, it, it, it struck me as being so ridiculous, mm-hmm. you know? And, and he also was like, so now we can, you know, like, I'd love to start something with you or, you know, and he wasn't in, he wasn't living there. He was in town for uh, like a week or something. And uh-huh. so there was that, there was like, it's convenient he wants to be forgiven. It's self-serving. And he's, yeah. he's feeling a little bit out of his element here in the city. Seeking and comfort, all of that yeah. together. And I was just like, when dinner was over, I kicked him to the Dumb. curb. Kicked him to the curb. Is, and, and that was really a defining moment. It really, that's where I really sort of left all of that behind. And I really felt freed by that dinner. You know that expression, a weight off your shoulders. I physically felt lighter after wow. that dinner. That's really amazing. It's it's funny that he saw it as a moment for you guys to get together. How ironic that you guys are here at this moment and let me take you to dinner and all these other things. But on the flip side, what really ended up happening was you closed the door and wrote the final line on the chapter of Colorado. So exactly. while it was sort of oddly serendipitous that he was there in that moment he thought you were there for him when in fact he was there for you that's really i have that's not looked at it that way damon i love that take that is gorgeous yeah. i've never i've never put it together in that way thank you for that insight absolutely that's beautiful yeah that's really amazing wow and i'm glad that you got that closure a lot of times people end up with this anchor around their ankle from their days prior and they're dragging it through life. And for you to be able to hack that thing off and sprint forward is really unbelievable. It's really incredible. Lisa shared that everything that informs her art is about trying to teach people to let go of their own pasts that may be eating them from the inside, destroying them. We talked a bit about the mental health challenges in her family growing up. Lisa's mom was a hypochondriac, thought she had multiple personalities, and could have been schizophrenic, but that was never diagnosed. Lisa's sister, Kathleen, unfortunately took her own life just a few short years ago. She talks about their sister and how she wishes Kathleen could have gotten some help to move on from how she was treated when they were children. My little sister, who we mentioned earlier, who committed suicide, in last April, she suffered of the three of us, I think the most in that house. But I, I really think that my sister probably was bipolar from the time that she was really small. And while my brother and I, he's very much like me in that he wants everyone to be happy. And so what we do is we spend all of our time trying to make everyone in the room comfortable. You know, that's just how we're built. And, and Kathleen's much more competitive and she wasn't afraid of confrontation. And she was always pushing my adoptive mother's buttons. And she really, really bore the brunt of it a lot of the time. And then she could never let it go. So for the rest of our life, our adult lives, I, we would have conversations and talk about it, talk about our childhood. And she just, you know, I would tell her, please find a way find a way because we could not have a conversation without having to rehash all of that. Like mm-hmm. She couldn't speak about what she was doing. And my brother and I always say that she was the smartest of the three of us. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Brilliant mind. Mm. But she could 
not let go. So certainly her mental illness was a part of why she committed suicide. But I really honestly believe that it's also because she could not let go of this past. Yeah. And, and the thing is, if we can look on our abusers with empathy, and that's the hardest thing in the world to do. Mm-hmm. But if you can look at your abuser with empathy and know that they are that way because something happened to them, because I truly believe that we are not born bad, like no one is born bad, something happened to create that. And once you can put ha- embrace that mindset and, and take it away from being all about you, then it's so freeing. So yeah, in some way, I, I, I'm, I'm consumed in my art to talk about this and Mm -hmm. like how to heal yeah this is one of the things that i've said to a couple of people is to be frank you can't own other people's shit right Right. the the what makes them tick in the ways that they do the the reactions that they have the way they carry themselves throughout their lives is on them And you can help them to try to fix it, but you can't carry that burden for them. And you have to separate yourself from their stuff in order to continue to move yourself forward. And this is something that I've I've told more than one person that I think is true, is that you just you cannot bear other people's burdens. You have to focus in on what you need, when you need it and how you need it to be done and get there and hope that the people that are around you come with you in a similar fashion. And if they don't leave them behind, you know, yeah, that's but right. this is, this is why I was, you know, I listened to a few of your podcasts and I, and I felt an affinity for you. And I, and I think in this, you know, in the healing of telling our stories and that's why I was so anxious to, to do this with you. And it was important to me to do this because I admire so much what you're doing. And I think it's really important. Thank you. So it, I, it was, I'm, I'm really honored that you um, gave me this time and space to be here with no, you. Today. Absolutely. No, it's my pleasure. And I'm always, I think the, the reciprocal thing that I would say to you is, as one of many adoptees who has stepped forward to share their story, I'm so honored that you would trust me as part of the process to tell the story. I mean, it's, it's not lost on me that this is a very personal journey that you are revealing. And even though you've written about it, blogged about it and stuff, it takes courage and the fact that you and others have trusted me with that is in, is incredible. As always, I wanted to know what prompted Lisa's desire to search. Where was she in her life at that time and how she set about locating anyone in her birth family? She said, That's such a great, great, great question. Because I love this story. Now we're getting to the happy stuff. I can get dry my tears. I documented the whole thing on my blog, on my website, which is lisamariesimmons.com. And it starts with the post, do a search for lemonade. If you put in the word lemonade, that'll be the first post that'll take you through the whole process. So Lisa and her band were leaving Italy, traveling back to Colorado to perform. On the plane, she's seated next to a British woman who shared her own story of going to meet her sister for the first time. The woman was adopted from birth, lived in England, and her sister remained in Colorado. The woman alerted Lisa to the recent changes in adoption laws in Colorado, allowing adoptees access to their birth records. The days of thinking closed records were best for everyone were gone in Colorado, but Lisa didn't know about the change in adoption record access laws until that moment, and she was on the way back to her home state. The woman, who was going to meet her sister for the first time, was a little scared about the meeting. She and Lisa talked the whole flight, Lisa holding her hand to calm the woman down before her big reunion. When she got off the plane, simply on a lark, she said, she decided she would apply for her original birth certificate, her OBC, while she was in Colorado. She figured she was strong enough at that point to handle whatever came next, happy or not. No matter what happened, she knew it would be fuel for her artistic expression. Now, I got to add that the year or two prior to this event, I was like, I'm happy with my life. 
I'm really stable, happy. I love my life. And um, with a man that I really love, he's a pianist in my band and we live on Lake Garda in this beautiful place. And, and I'm making art that I'm proud of. I'm no longer making this stuff that I don't believe in. And when I would finish my yoga each morning, I'd sit and meditate and I was strongly motivated to be thankful to whoever came before me, whoever gave me the blood that is running in my veins, who at this point in time, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like 45 years old, 46 years old. I'm assuming I'm never going to meet them, but I'm thinking, how is it that I've been so resilient? How is it that I am able to be productive and loving and kind and make things that are beautiful and put them out in the world? How can I do this? It's because of who came before me. It's because somebody gave this to me. So I had this impulse to just say thank you every mm. single morning when I finished yoga, every single morning for, for like a year. That sense of gratitude for the blood and creative juices flowing through her body preceded that plane ride to Colorado where she decided to apply for her OBC by a full year. It sounded to me as if Lisa was sending a signal out into the universe that whole year that she was ready to welcome whatever happened next. About three weeks after applying for her OBC, the document arrived at her home in Italy. I opened it up, and to see my birth mother's name, her name is Shirley, on that birth certificate, find out her age. She was really young. She was 22, the time of my birth. It was, it affected me more than I would have thought that it would, but I was still sort of in an investigative mode and I was still preparing myself for, you know, I thought she'd be gone, you know, dead or in jail or, you know, so many, so many things. You made up narratives for what the possibilities were. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I think I was. When I got the birth certificate, I was still trying to protect my heart and sort of, you know, looking at it from an artist's point of view a little bit. Lisa starts doing her search into her birth father. He had a very unique first name, so she went online. Lisa found a man who she thought was the guy. In her online travels, Lisa found a group of search angels where a wonderful woman helped her journey along. She agreed the man Lisa found seemed like he was her birth father and shared that a few years back, he had been looking for Lisa. They dug up some contact information for the man, and Lisa tried to call. No answer. She found what seemed to be Lisa's children online. She left Facebook messages and tried everything to get someone to respond, but no one was connecting. And then I find a death notice. I know he's dead. So I thought, okay... Well, I'm really interested in my mother anyway. So I let that go and concentrated on Shirley. And I found somebody with her exact same name, which lived in the same town in Louisiana. Wow. And it wasn't her. Wow. I wrote, I wrote, I wrote a letter and I, cause I wanted to give her an out because you don't know what you're going to find if they're interested. And so I thought I'm going to write a snail mail letter so that I'm not stepping on her feelings or doing anything that might be harmful to her. So I just wrote a letter with something like, you know, I think I might be your daughter. This is when I was born. This is where I was born. Don't feel obligated to speak to me. If you could just confirm yes or no, if you are, I will totally understand if you don't want any contact, you know, I'm sure you had your reasons. And this is true. This is something that I thought all my life. I never held rancor towards her. And I know this is not true of all adoptees, but for some reason, I never, ever doubted that she had her reasons. So I said, you know, I, I know you, whatever happened, there was a reason that you did what you did. And, and I'm not angry with you. And I, I'm not trying to invite myself into your life unwanted. But just let me know. So I know and then I can stop searching. So I sent one of these off and the woman wrote back a really nice letter saying, oh, I'm so sorry that I'm not your mother, you know. And so then I sent out another one. And, oh, God, I had played, Marco and I had played a a show the night before. It was a Saturday morning, and I'm in bed, and I'm tired, and 
and I I left my email on on the, the snail mail as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I I lift my phone up to my eye, and I'm half asleep still. I open my eye, and in the subject line, and this makes me cry when I think about it. In subject line, it said, "Yes, it's me." You know, and I open up this email, and it's my mother, and she says, "It is me," and I'm so sorry. And I'm so glad you found me. Oh my gosh. And then we started our conversation, you know, and she's the most wonderful woman. Lisa immediately wrote an email back to her birth mother, Shirley, inviting her to talk more, to video chat over Skype or somehow connect right away. Shirley said okay, but she was going to need help from Lisa's half-sister, Cassandra, to make the connection. So I spoke to Cassandra first, who's the eldest, Mm -hmm. and she is so wonderful as well. And we talked first, and she told me that my mother had never told anyone in the family about me. Wow. So can you imagine the courage it took when she got that letter? So she called Cassandra and said, I don't know what to do. Do you think she's going to, she must be so angry with me. And oh my God, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I've never told anybody. And what do I do? And Cassandra read my note and she said, no, this woman is not angry with you. I can promise you just read her letter, call her right now, send her an email right now. So she did that. And so that first day, that next day, I spent the entire day on FaceTime or something, the entire day with Cassandra and Rhonda, my sisters, and then my mother, and just trying to tell each other stuff. And so, oh, before before they contacted me, when Cassandra saw my letter, she went and Googled me. And she found the blog documenting my search. Wow. And she read every one. And she saw pictures of me, and I look exactly like my mother. Wow. Wow. So she was like, yeah, it's your daughter. There's no doubt Mm -hmm. that this is your daughter. So that was one of the most beautiful days of my life. The very next week, after that marathon emotional online reunion, Lisa and her band were headed back to the United States. Lisa's band was nominated for an award, so they had a trip to Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts in New York City planned. They were flying to Colorado, where she was asked to speak at the Conference on World Affairs. And the group had a performance before the conference appearance. Lisa's agenda was packed, but after a lifetime apart, Shirley wasn't going to let Lisa venture all the way to the United States and not try to make a plan to meet one another face-to-face. In the States, Lisa and Shirley were messaging one another every day trying to figure out how she could get away to visit Shirley in Louisiana, where she lived. Two days before the show, my mom says, I can't do it. I can't wait. My husband and I are going to drive up there and meet you. So she drove to Colorado. And the day that she arrived was the day before the concert. So I went and picked her up at the hotel. And when I saw her, like, again, I... I have always been that person who said, you've got to create your family. You've got to create your luck. The people who are bad to you or bad for you, get rid of them. Keep the good, positive people around you. Those are your family. You don't need blood. You don't need it. But I'll tell you, when she walked towards me across that hotel lobby and put her arms around me and held me, it was healing. It was it was so deeply healing of something that I didn't even know I was missing. I didn't even know. So then we went to lunch and we held hands and we laughed and we told stories. And she told me my birth story, you know, like what happened. I was the fourth child. She was 22 years old. She wasn't with the man. Really? Wow. All of this stuff. And then she met her husband who she's with now. She met him the same year that I was born right after I was born. 
and they got married and he adopted, you know, like he got all the kids are his. And she said, he would have taken you in as well. You know, for sure. If I had known I was going to meet him, I would never have given you up. And, oh, wow. and I think about you every night before I go to sleep. And it's been such a weight. And, and uh, I remember the day that, that I had to sign the papers and let you go. And I just sat on this bench and I just cried and I cried and I, and I couldn't find, see a way out of it. I couldn't see a way out of it. I didn't have you know, I didn't have anybody to support me and I was already underwater with the three that I had mm-hmm. and I just didn't see how I could, how I could keep you. And I'm so sorry. And, and she, she, my thing was, I just wanted to alleviate her guilt. I said, I've always known, I've always known there was a reason you really, you don't, please don't feel like I'm so happy with my life and I'm so happy with who I am. And it's, and it's a culmination of everything that I've gone through. And I wouldn't change who I am. So please don't carry that weight anymore. Please don't carry that weight. Lisa and her birth mother, Shirley, and her husband had a wonderful cathartic lunch together. That evening, they had dinner with some of Lisa's good friends and her brother's husband. Unfortunately, Lisa's brother, also a singer, was off performing elsewhere. But during that emotional day of the conference and the reunion dinner, his husband was there to support Lisa in his stead. She describes the spectacular moment around the dinner table together. I'm telling you, that dinner, there was a light in that room and around that table Mm -hmm. that was amazing. It was incandescent. It was almost visible, the beauty of that, of those emotions, you know, she never let go of my hand. <laughs> After lunch, she went and bought us matching bracelets so we'd be connected when I went back to Italy. That's so cute. And then the next night, I had a concert to do. I put her in the front row, and I sang. I told the audience the story. <laughs> my man, Marco, is like, you like winning easy. He's like, that was easy to win over that audience. I told them the story. I put her there in the front row, and I sang every song to her. And... And it was, I don't know, it's probably not the best that I've ever sung, but it's certainly the most heartfelt that I've ever sung. Yeah, it was, might not have been the best, but probably the most beautiful, you know? You know, everybody cried in the audience. Oh, yeah. You know, I had everybody crying all through the show. The following evening, Lisa's adoptive father invited everyone over for a dinner party. He had been very jealous during the whole reunion adventure, but Lisa just ignored it. She thought about canceling the event and just hanging out with Shirley and Randolph. But Shirley said, no, no, her father wanted to do this thing for them, and they should go. So we go to the center, and I, let me say that her husband, Randolph, is amazing as well. Mm-hmm. He's this southern gentleman. He's got this slow drawl, this molasses voice, and just <laughs> so delicious, just so kind and so sweet. And and saying, you know, I'm your stepdaddy, and I'm your daddy. You know, just, oh, God, just heartbreaking so anyway so we go to this dinner and i'm hand in hand with my mother the entire time and at the end of the dinner one of these these gentlemen there that we neither one of us knew and had had met said oh you guys are so much uh alike and and we said yeah we know everybody's been telling us we look alike we look so much alike and he said no 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 it's not that what i feel from both of you is a generosity of spirit after that initial visit Lisa came back to the States to visit Shirley in Louisiana. Lisa visited Shirley's home, the one where Lisa could have grown up with her siblings. She also got to see her grandmother's home. Sadly, Shirley's mother passed away only two weeks before Lisa found her birth mother. I'm the luckiest woman alive because it doesn't happen for so many adoptees like this. And I still talk to her like all the time. And I'm so in love with her. and. You know, it's easy because we didn't go through the hard teenage years and all the rest of it. And it's, it's all just about recovery and loving each other, you know. But we're, just, we're so in love. I'll bet. Oh, my God. <laughs> you guys are so cute. That's really unreal. I'm going to send you a picture as soon as I put down, as soon as we finish this. Yeah, I'd love to see. I mean, to hear that you guys are so visibly similar, but also to hear that someone else says that you and your natural mother share spirit in a generous way 
is fascinating. I can feel your spirit through our conversation here. And to know that yours is derived from her is also really fascinating to hear. I can't help thinking, though, about this moment in time for her because she has gone through and was probably still processing mourning her mother. I mean, just, just a couple of weeks prior. And then here you are face to face in person. I mean, that must have been, gosh, her emotions must have been on a roller coaster, both one for the mourning the loss of her mom, two for the gratitude for having ever connected with you in the first place, and then three and probably more for the regret that you weren't there two weeks earlier so that you could have met her. I mean, it must have been just yeah, an emotional she ball. She definitely expressed that. And, and I did during the, the show that I, that I performed, I, I, I put together a couple of songs for, for the grandmother as well because of that. Yeah. That's great. It, was, it must have been a really emotional time for her. And I think, you know, we haven't, we haven't really talked about it, but I think so much of, well, we have talked about it in a little bit, but I think so much about how difficult it must have been for her to tell her husband and to tell her other children that she had not told them this, you know, and the guilt. And so, and I think she still carries a little bit of that that, and I, and I really want to alleviate it for her because she just was doing what she, what she, what she could do. She was just trying to get through, you know, but I think, and she told me this, that meeting me, alleviated a lot of the pain of the loss of her mother you know like it was some sort of closing of a circle that made that easier which which i'm so happy for yeah that i could do that's really amazing and in that same trip after she left then my brother Dwayne, who lives in california packed up his family in a camper and drove over the mountains and came to meet me oh wow that's really yeah. cool and that was incredible too Lisa is the second youngest of her siblings. Cassandra, Rhonda, and Dwayne are older, then Lisa, and Catherine is the youngest child of Shirley and Randolph. Remember, Lisa was the oldest in her adoptive family. Now, she's nearly the youngest. She was a person who never ventured into the South, steering clear of what was a fearful environment to her, but it's where her roots are. Lisa remarked that many of the signposts of her identity have been completely changed in this connection to her birth family's history. When we closed, I asked Lisa about where she is now with things. So I guess what I would love for you to finish us out with is sort of where you are now. Reunion can be so many different things to different people, and Mm -hmm. it sounds like it was redemptive for you in a way that you didn't expect. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just tell me, and I think you may have said this in email, that there was sort of the before and now there's the after. Tell me a little bit about where you are now. That's exactly it. It's so true. There is a before and there is an after. It, it was redemptive and it was cathartic. And I think at the core, I am all of who I've always been. But there is that thread. I just wrote a poem about it the other day and I called it the Red River Stream. And, and, and that's that blood, you know, and what's been carried on that blood. And I don't know how to say it really, but there's something in being able to trace that, that is healing to me. And I, and I, don't, and I know it's not that way for everyone, but I feel like I just had this hole in my heart that I was pretending wasn't there or that I was just trying to fill with, with something else or, or was trying to... I just didn't acknowledge it, I guess. And, and I, I just, I feel healed in some way. And I'm very inspired, not just to tell this story, but my creativity is really fizzing right now. And I think it's because of this. I think it somehow opened up and allowed me space it, it's, it somehow has inspired my creativity even more than I had before. And I've always been a really creative person, but I feel like I have more permission somehow to be creative now. And I'm not sure why that is. That's fascinating. I guess that's where I'm at right now. I'm feeling really good about my life. I'm, I'm feeling really lucky, lucky, lucky. 
I'm filled with gratitude and, and I'm filled with the responsibility of making my time here on this planet count for something. And I'm filled with a sense of purpose that I can be a healing force in this world. And that is my purpose. And it has never been more clear than it is right now in this moment for me. My gosh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Because so many people don't reach that point of realization of what their true power is. And this sort of, for lack of better words, awakening of your spirit that you're feeling as a result of, you know, closing the gap between you and your natural mother and hearing her validate what you had already known all your life, that there was a reason you were given up. She said it, and now you guys are in love, as you said. You're lucky. You're right. Not, a, not everybody reaches this point. Oh, my gosh, like, I'm it's so like lucky. the pinnacle of what can be accomplished with, with reunion, and I'm so it happy is. for you. It's really amazing. It is. It is the pinnacle. I'm, I, I'm so aware of, of the luck that I have. My brother, and he's, you know, he's a little bit worried to, he's got, he, he also applied for his, his birth certificate. He's got it, but he said, you know, how can I, how can my story top yours? And I, and and that hurts me, you know? And he said, I don't want to be rejected twice. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And that hurts me too. But again, I, I promise you, I was prepared for it not to be beautiful. I was prepared. And I think that I still, I, I truly believe that even if I didn't reach this perfect ending, that it still would have been cathartic for me, that it still would have been something that would have closed a circle for me, mm -hmm. despite it. You know, I just cannot emphasize enough how important it is to realize that it is not you, that it, whatever reason for which you were left, it is not you, you know? And so there's no reason to be angry or, or hold rancor to, to whoever did whatever they did. It, all that does is hurt you yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you can let that go, whatever happens is okay. That's right. Yeah, I agree. Ooh, Lisa, this was amazing. Wow. I'm so, <laughs> it's funny. I don't usually do these face-to-face. -face, so to have you on Zoom and see your expressiveness throughout your story has been really valuable for me. And... <laughs> We've shared a tear here, which has been really beautiful, too. Um, I'm so thankful to you for opening up, sharing your story. It's going to benefit so many other adoptees. And I'm just I'm really thankful to you and every other adoptee out there that, as I've said, entrusts me with your story. And I'm just so happy that your story went as well as it did, that, you know, you got the closure in New York. You got the closure with your natural mother and you've it's been in a position to open up your creativity in a way that you feel more empowered than you ever have before. I think it's really awesome. Thank you so much. I, I'm so happy to be here, and I'm and I'm I'm such a fan. And I just wish you the best of luck with this podcast. Thank and you. I'll continue to spread the word because I think what you're doing is so valuable. And thank you so much also for making me feel so comfortable that I could cry here with you and asking such probing, interesting questions. This was a really beautiful experience, Excellent. and I haven't really cried like this. I haven't really cried like this telling the story in the way that I have with you and and I and I think that's because of your empathy and and your the shared experience that you have For sure. um, with me and and I just I'm just so honored thank you thank of you course. so much all the best thanks for taking time you take care okay you take care too all right bye all right. lisa bye hey it's me it's interesting when a person reflects on their early life and how they reached the point of who they are today as a person. Lisa could have been a bitter, angry person after being abused and abandoned on a transatlantic flight back to the States, then placed with an adoptive mother who was mentally ill and abusive. But I believe some people have a natural propensity to emit and seek out positive energy, and Lisa strikes me as one of them. She fully admitted that her wonderful reunion, finding acceptance with Shirley, her children and husband, having the opportunity to sing to her in the front row, and the good fortune to fall in love with each other is the kind of happy ending most adoptees hope for.
But we also heard Lisa say she was prepared for the worst possible outcome of her adoption search and reunion experience. I liked her closing remark to other adoptees, reminding us that whatever the reason you were relinquished, it's not your fault. It's not you. Always remember that. If you'd like to learn more about Lisa's journey, you can check her out online at lisamariesimmons.com. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you've found something in Lisa's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash really or follow on Twitter at really. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And if you're interested, you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com, on Kindle, or as an audiobook on Audible. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.